Hello and welcome to the Autism in Real Life podcast. In each episode, you'll get practical strategies by taking a journey into the joys and challenges of life with autism. I'm your host, Ilya Walsh, and I'm an educator and the parent of two young adults, one of which is on the autism spectrum. Join me as I share my experience and the experiences of others so that we may see the unique gifts and talents of individuals on the autism spectrum fully recognized. Hello, everybody, and welcome. Uh, today, uh, for this episode, I have a guest with me, Peter Hahn, and um, we're going to be talking about special education law, um, and particularly, just I would say this is really probably a general overview of special ed law, um, as well as, you know, given our current uh, our current climate right now, how does this impact uh, education um, during this time of uh, pandemic? So <laughs> I think we have a lot to talk about, but I'd rather uh, just step back for a second. And Peter, welcome. I'm so happy to have you um, on the podcast today. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Yeah, and um, just to give the audience a little bit of background, uh, I first met you when we when I was working at um, the Asperger Autism Network (AANE), and I was a director of adult services, and uh, you were doing some consultation work with us, working with uh, disability services for the state of Massachusetts, and doing some training uh, for clinicians around working with adults um, on the autism spectrum and some of the kind of, you know, um, uncomfortable situations that some of them can get into. And perhaps we could focus on that for another podcast in the future. I think that would be really interesting. Um, but that was how we first met. And then since then, you've done a lot of work with A&E uh, and also, you know, your own practice. And so um, could you just introduce yourself to the audience and let them know your background, and maybe why you chose special education law uh, as opposed to some other kind of, you know, practice that you would have. Yes, that would be great. Again, my name is Peter Hahn, and I have a private law practice uh, in Newton, Massachusetts, and I've had it for a number of years now, and I've always been interested, even before becoming a lawyer, in working with children and families, especially those in need, and advocating uh, on behalf of them. I have a background uh, being a teacher, and then I went to law school. And when I was in law school, I thought, can I take this interest in working with children and families uh, into the law? And uh, at the time, I was not quite sure that I could. But after uh, doing some networking and taking some classes and doing a clinic in law school, I realized that, yes, I can, in fact, uh, make this a career. So I was originally a judicial law clerk in the Massachusetts Juvenile Court, uh, helping out judges. And then from there, I opened up my own practice and I sought out education law, special education law and discipline law and other areas, related areas of the law. And I also represent clients in other matters. So children and families of children with disabilities, young adults with disabilities, not only in education matters, but 
if they find themselves in or involved with the juvenile court or criminal cases or in Massachusetts here, the Department of Children and Families, which is a child welfare agency. But I would say my foundation is uh, being a parent side attorney for uh, special education law. So I'm really excited to talk about that today with you and with all of your listeners. In terms of AANE, my connection with AANE actually goes back a number of years. I'm trying to remember how long ago now it's been. Uh, maybe even before you were there, I can't remember exactly when we first connected. I've been speaking at AANE conferences on various areas of the law, including education law, uh, for years and and there have been some seminars uh, like you talked about, and it's been a great connection uh, working with other people who are specialists and people who really care about uh, people who are on the autism spectrum and supporting them, advocating for them, making sure their rights are respected, making sure they and the people who love them understand their rights has been really important to me. Yeah, and I know that's um, been the uh, the joy of working with you uh, because you do uh, you make the information very accessible and you make it um, easy as best as sometimes as it can be for people and that's why I, I wanted to have your voice um, represented here so that people could uh, could get that perspective and I think sometimes. Um, you know, when we talk about special education law or education law, it can feel, especially as a parent or as a teacher myself, um, it feels like it feels very like a big deal, right? It can get um, this, create this feeling of, wow, what am I doing? Am, am I doing the right thing? Should I do this? Should I do that? So can we talk a little bit about, you know, special education law and why, I guess, why it it's there. And if I'm asking the question in a weird way, um, please bring me back so that I, it makes more sense. But I think people many times, I've worked with clients where they're telling me what's happening at school. And I would say, they really can't do that. And they're like, well, what do you mean they can't do that? They just told me X, Y, Z. And I was like, well, no, legally, they can't do that. And then they, they sort of go, what, what do you mean legally? Like, I think many people don't know that there are, you know, um, measures in place to help protect students and help protect families, as well as the education side. But, but from the parent advocacy side, can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Special education law is fundamentally about the rights and responsibilities as they, the legal rights and responsibilities as they relate to students who have identified disabilities uh, in the educational realm, and that they require specially designed instruction, accommodations, and related services in order to make educational progress or effective educational progress, and therefore receive a free appropriate public education in the least restrictive environment. So I threw out a number of key terms there yes, in you special did. education law <laughs> that we can go over if you'd like in more detail. I do want to say that as an attorney, I'm licensed to practice in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts only. So my presentation today will be based on two areas of the law. Laws can be created and enacted and implemented federally across the United States by the federal government. 
And then also each individual state can have its own set of laws and regulations that not only have to comply with federal law, but can have variations on that law that are more uh, sometimes favorable to students or timelines that are different, uh, but not any longer than what federal law would require. So I will be talking about from my perspective as a Massachusetts attorney, and much of that is based on federal law, so it would apply everywhere, but some of it is based on Massachusetts law, which would only apply in Massachusetts. So for listeners outside of Massachusetts, I encourage you with any specific question to seek out state-specific resources and professionals to answer any specific legal questions uh, that you may have. There are a lot of resources online. There are a lot of professionals out there who work with kids, whether they're attorneys <clears throat> or special education advocates or collateral professionals who are also aware of the local law or can point you in the right direction. Right. No, that's that's super important. And I think um, I know coming from New York uh, there, you know, I was struggling with my own school district. And then when I came to Massachusetts, I was like, wow, this is a big difference. Now, now, while the school I was in in, in New York you know, could have, I think, done a, a better job <laughs> in, in meeting needs. I think once I stepped into Massachusetts, it was clear that the laws were different. So I think it's really important that, um, you know, listeners understand that it has to be, the federal law is sort of like the minimum, and then each state can, has to meet the minimum or do better, right? I mean, in a simpler way. Yes, exactly. <laughs> okay, excellent. And so, yeah, so let's go back to some of those terms that you threw out before, all of which um, I love, but sometimes can can be, uh, I mean, I know sometimes schools leave them open for interpretation, and I don't want this to be a school um, bashing session, obviously not, because schools do a lot of work, and especially now there's a lot of, uh, a lot of challenge, but um, you know, when we talk about all the different pieces, so can you pull some of those out, you know, so students identified, uh, if I can go back, uh, who are mm -hmm. identified with special needs or special, who need specialized instruction. Um, yes, yeah, so under the law, there. this really starts with students with disabilities. So at the root of the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, we're talking about students with disabilities, and the law specifically describes and defines a number of disabilities. That could be autism, that could be a specific learning disability, that could be a communication impairment, it could be an emotional impairment, it could be a health impairment. So there are these categories that if you have a certain diagnosis or a certain presentation, you would be identified as having at least one of these disability categories. You could have one or more. So you could have a student with ADHD and dyslexia and anxiety and be in multiple categories. So as long as there is one identified disability, then that's really the outset of uh, whether or not you're eligible for special education. I will say now that one responsibility of school districts is what's called a child find requirement under IDEA. And that is a proactive responsibility of school districts to identify students with disabilities or who may have disabilities, and then to propose 
a consent to evaluate form to the parents or guardians or caregivers of those students. That is proactive. And this is one of the areas of the law where I think in practice, at least in my experience, school districts don't do enough. There are some that do, but there are some that do not. And because this is a proactive responsibility, I do think school districts can do more. But that also leads me to the next step, which is once you're receiving that consent to evaluate from a school district, it starts a certain timeline. So a parent who consents to the evaluation, then the evaluation has to occur, and then there needs to be a team meeting. The team is uh, defined in the law. The team is a group of people. Uh, there needs to be someone uh, in a decision-making role with decision-making authority. That's usually the team leader. There needs to be a general education teacher. Um, there, of course, needs to be the parent or guardian or caregiver. That person also has a right uh, to bring an advocate. And then if there is a specially designed instruction or support involved, then those related service providers or special educators are supposed to be part of the team. But at the outset, it's all about whether or not the student with the disability is identified as being eligible for special education. And as I said before, that means not only having an identified disability, but not being able to make educational progress or effective educational progress unless you have special education, which is specially designed instruction, accommodations, and related services, which could be, for example, occupational therapy or physical therapy. Right. So let's let's pause there for a second. So if we if we think of that, I thought of a few things. Um, there's the the piece where this is where uh, the situation you discussed is okay. A uh, the the child is at school. Their teachers are noticing that maybe they're having some difficulties or struggling in, you know, understanding the curriculum and so or, or or whatever. Right. There could be a whole list of different things they're seeing. And so they they come together and they ask the family if they um, for a consent to evaluate. Now, what about the flip side? Um, oftentimes, I also hear that the school hasn't created that, but the parents might be noticing something and they seek an external evaluation. So what's the, what are the differences between the school having done their evaluation and having an external evaluation? Or private, yes. First I guess. of all, I do want to back up. I did not mention this scenario where parents request an evaluation, a special education evaluation. Certainly if parents request it in writing, to the appropriate people, then a school district has the absolute obligation to conduct the evaluation oh, that, right, in the yeah. areas of suspected disability. Yep, yep, that's the that's the third way, right? <laughs> right, yes. Want to make sure people hear that. So there are situations where parents have not notified the school district of their intent to request that the school district do the special education evaluation. And then there are also situations where the school district does the evaluation and the parents aren't satisfied with it or aren't satisfied with the decision of the school district as a result of the school district evaluation. So here you have independent educational evaluations. 
or private evaluations that are secured by the parent. So there are a few things going on there with that. In Massachusetts, uh, if the evaluation done by the school district is not sufficient in the parent's eyes or it doesn't cover all the areas of disability, uh, then there can be the request for the independent educational evaluation, which if the situation meets certain circumstances, including financial circumstances, the school district would have to pay for. I but see. there are a number of qualifications there, and I that that could yeah, be no. podcast in <laughs> itself. So you, whatever jurisdiction you're in, you should take a look at the the law and regulations around that if that's the situation you're in. Parents okay. can also, of course, at any time, uh, pay for their own private evaluation. Uh, that would be at their cost and not at the cost of the school district. Sure, and that evaluation, once a report is generated, can be presented to the school. So in Massachusetts, though school side attorneys and parent side attorneys don't exactly agree on this, <laughs> my take on it is that under the Massachusetts regulations that at any time, if you as the parent or on the side of the parent present a separate or independent or private evaluation that the team has to meet within 10 days to discuss that evaluation. If that student has already been identified as eligible for special education, then the law is certain that you have to do that. If the student has not been identified yet as eligible for special education, which I believe is the original question that you had, mm -hmm. um, my belief is that the team still has to meet to discuss eligibility. Right. School side attorneys take the position that if you're not determined to be eligible yet, that the presentation of that report is essentially putting the school on notice uh, under child find to propose their consent to evaluate form. And once the parents consent to evaluate to the school district's evaluation, it starts the timeline. I see. Okay. I didn't add the specifics before. Under federal law, the timeline is 60 days, 60 school days of receiving the consent that the school has to complete its evaluations and have the team meeting to determine eligibility. In Massachusetts, it is a shorter timeline. The right. evaluations have to be completed within 30 school days and the team meeting within 45 school days. Both of those timelines from the date of receipt of consent. Right. So, so I hope yeah. that answered your question, the original no, question that prompted all of that. <laughs> if not, <laughs> no, let me know. No, I mean, definitely. I feel like, um, again, this is why this topic is important because we have, I, I was speaking to another mom who had brought, you know, a different state though, had brought the information to the school and the school was kind of taking a long time and not recognizing. And, and I think this is kind of leading into my next piece. They, the school feels that the student is making progress, right? So I think this is another place where it gets a little, um, I don't know. For me, it feels a little subjective, right? So, what's effective progress? I guess if and then we're going to pull out another <laughs> another term that you threw out there before, which is who determines effective progress and how do we know what that looks like? Especially so many different disabilities, right? For each for each one, it can look very different. For each individual, of course, it can look very different. So, 
Help me understand that a little bit more. Yes, I do want to finish off the last response with a tip for parents and advocates, and it even provides clarity, I think, for school staff. But definitely for parents and advocates, a tip is that you always want to be putting in writing your concerns. And I understand that that may not be intuitive uh, because often you like to have an in-person conversation with a teacher or school staff or maybe a phone call. But it's really important, especially from a legal perspective, that you put your concerns in writing and that you be very specific and very clear that you are requesting a special education evaluation because the law is absolutely clear when you say that in writing, the school district has to do it. It's not saying that they have to find your child eligible, but it does mean that the school has to at least evaluate. No, that's a that's a fair point. Yeah, everything should go in writing and email would be would be acceptable, correct? Yes, email is acceptable. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, yeah, it's unfortunate because you sometimes have good relationships with the maybe the direct teacher for your child or, you know, some of the other providers. But then, you know, you might have that informal conversation, but then you have to, nope, I've got to put it in email. I got to, you know, make it more formal. Yeah. And it can be as simple as following up after the conversation or meeting with an email and saying, thanks for meeting today about my son. And I'm looking forward to having the school do an evaluation for special education. It could be as simple as that, or you could just straightforward say, thank you for meeting today. I'm writing to confirm that we talked about my request for my son to be evaluated for special education. Yeah, that's perfect. Thank you. Thank you for mm-hmm. that. And then, Effective yeah. progress, yes. So yeah. that's another <laughs> aspect of the eligibility determination. So as we talked about, it's an identified disability. And then the next question is whether or not the student is making educational progress. And when it comes down to it, there is no strict bright line rule for defining effective progress. There are certain areas of the, um, of the law and regulations that in my mind attempt to define it, but it's not as bright line as you would like. So there have been United States Supreme Court cases on this. In Massachusetts, we have a certain regulation about effective progress. And then in jurisdictions all across the country, uh, you should be checking on whether or not there are variations on the language used to define what effective progress is. But what's clear from the United States Supreme Court is that uh, is that when a student is identified as eligible, it has to be a provision of special education that allows the child to make progress appropriate in light of the child's circumstances. And you might wonder, that doesn't really say anything. And I would not question um, that reaction. However, the United States Supreme Court in Andrew F. V. Douglas County School District from 2017, so not too long ago, said that the educational program must be appropriately ambitious. And in a former... Uh, Supreme Court case, Hendrick Hudson, 
Board of Education versus Rowley. This is from 1982. If you're found eligible for special education, that requires personalized instruction with sufficient support services for a disabled child to benefit educationally from the instruction. And this may sound a bit like it's putting the cart before the horse, but in a sense, it's important to understand what it means to be special education uh, for you to understand how you're eligible to receive those services. What I can say is in Massachusetts, uh, effective progress is defined in our law and regulations here as making documented growth in the acquisition of knowledge and skills, including social emotional development within the general education program with or without accommodations, according to chronological age and developmental expectations. And this is all about the individual educational potential of the student. So special education leads to an IEP or individualized education program. The idea of special education is focused on the individual student. So <clears throat> what I will say from there though is special education, it's clear in the law that the school does not have to provide a maximum educational benefit under, uh, under the law. So educational progress isn't about the best possible education that your son or daughter could receive from the school district. And that is one thing that is clear, that that definition of effective progress isn't the most progress, it's just effective progress. Okay, so that's so a, I threw that's out a, a number of things yeah. there, um, <laughs> and you could understand why an advocate or a parent would say, "But what does that really mean?" And the reality is that we look at individual students, we look at their disabilities, we look at how they're doing in at the outset, the general education setting. If they're already eligible for special education, we also look about their progress or a lack of progress in the setting that they're at at the time to define and determine whether or not they're making effective progress or effective educational progress. And then that is to determine first whether they're eligible for special education. And then after that point to figure out what's necessary on the IEP. And then after that point to determine whether or not an IEP is to continue with the same level of instruction and services and accommodations if the IEP needs to be amended to provide more or place the and or place the child in a more restrictive setting or if the student is now at a place with the development of skills um, and having a past support to be able to then access the general education curriculum without an IEP and therefore is no longer eligible to continue to receive an IEP or special education services. Right. So I think it's important, a, a few things in there is one, um, it's it's important for families to recognize that, like you said, this, the district or the school does not have to provide what would be the ideal, right, maximum Per, you know, perfect program for your child. Um, so that's, I think that's a, a, an important key piece. Uh, and, and also that uh, you could have a, you know, someone who is diagnosed with ADD, ADHD, and not 
necessarily ever go on an IEP because they are making progress and, you know, they don't need any specialized instruction or services. Or if I understood you correctly, if the way, and this is my words, if the way that this classroom or the school instruction is designed is already able to meet their needs, they wouldn't necessarily then need to have an IEP or put those particular, um, I guess, supports that are being offered to all students may not necessarily then need to be put on an IEP. Is that right? That is generally true, the last thing you said, but every situation is different. It's sure. very fact-specific. And yes, I'm an attorney, so I'm going to rely <laughs> on that. But it's really true because I have parents and families come to me with similar situations, and I might say to them, well, from this perspective, it doesn't look like you have objective evidence to say that your daughter is not making effective progress under the law. There may be, for example, eligibility for a 504 plan under Section 504. We may be talking about that later, but just very briefly, if you have a disability and that is uh, keeping you from the benefit of your education, then under Section 504, you can have an accommodation plan. That's accommodations only. So you see accommodations on an IEP, but if you only require accommodations, you would be eligible under 504. You would not be eligible under special education law. So you could have a situation where you have an individualized 504 plan with a student on, uh, excuse me, with a student who's, let's say, diagnosed with ADHD and it requires certain accommodations in the classroom, like preferential seating or uh, taking breaks, things like that. That would be, those would be strict accommodations. There are other situations where school districts may have a district-wide accommodation plan that is more than what is strictly required under the law for all students, um, but they have that in place, or the classroom might be one in which the teacher is essentially providing specialized instruction sure. uh, to, to certain students. So that's where it starts to become more difficult to answer that question. Because right. if, let's say, a teacher is doing more for a certain student, because that's what that teacher does as part of her general education setting, for me, that would be an indication not only that that student should be evaluated for special education. Uh, to me, that's definitely a child find trigger. Uh, mm -hmm. At least I would hope that it would be seen <laughs> as a child find trigger. Uh, but that a staff person is providing specialized instruction for that student already without right. an IEP. So right. if that student requires specialized instruction in that classroom, but then doesn't get it the next year because it's not guaranteed under an IEP, then that student is likely going to not be able to make educational progress. So uh, the, que the original question doesn't have um, a strict answer to it. It really depends on the circumstances of the situation.
Yeah, and I think that's that's really an important point because I think um, you know I work with a lot of educators every year. I probably train 150 every year, and one of the things they talk about we talk about a few things in this area. One is you know teachers sometimes you know we talk about universal design and we talk about making the curriculum accessible for all students because we might have students in the classroom who might not ever get evaluated or maybe, you know, just kind of don't necessarily meet specific criteria, but they still need that little extra something. So we would, you know, we would often joke, it's just good teaching, right? We would be doing just the thing that we're supposed to be doing is making sure all the students understand the curriculum and and are able to access that. But when I would, I would flip my hat and be on the parent side and do, and say exactly that same thing, I've actually was there was one particular district that I was working with and they were saying, well, the teachers are already doing all of these things. It was a middle school, um, you know, a middle school student. And I said, that's wonderful that their teachers are all doing that. But when he moves into high school, (laughs) the teachers may not do those same things. And if they don't know what the other teachers have been doing, they might not know what to put into place. So we need to kind of capture that information so that the next year or years to come, they can look at that, especially we're moving into transition year, right? So it's like, yes. okay, we need to look at that stuff before we could say that, but he's doing really well. He's doing really well because those teachers are doing these 10 things to help and support, but the other teachers aren't going to know that. So I think that's, um, you know, it's this balance of good teaching, good teaching practice, um, but also still it might not necessarily carry over for a whole bunch of different reasons from year Right. To year. And there are so many important things that go along with being found eligible for special education uh, that document the profile of the student and the progress or lack of progress of the student. And it's all supposed to be in writing. So when you're talking about the scenario that you're saying where the student might be getting something in elementary and or middle school, and then in high school, there's no real documented history of it. And then there's no IEP. So there's no guarantee of services. When you have that IEP, the IEP is a document that reduces to writing not only the concerns of the family, the vision statement, the profile of the student, results of evaluations that are done, the identified disability, the types of the type of specially designed instruction that's necessary, the supports that are necessary, the accommodations that are necessary, mm-hmm. the services that are required for the student the type of placement, the reason for the type of placement, I could go on and on and on. It is a comprehensive document. If you just have a best practices teacher, or I would say someone going beyond best practices, Mm -hmm. doing a great job for that student and that student's making progress because of that, none of the beyond best practices part of that is necessarily in writing anywhere, that that's what was required for that student to be able to make progress. Whereas when you have an IEP, it's there. So it's it's a legal document. It's uh, the responsibility of the school for students who meet that eligibility requirement. There's a lot of information in it. And then there are also goals in there that have to have measurable uh, 
objectives and benchmarks that have to describe, for example, an executive functioning goal or a therapeutic emotional goal or a reading goal, a writing goal. What is the current performance of that student? What are the uh, what's the benchmark right now? Uh, what are the objectives for that student over the course of the next year? Because an IEP is supposed to be for a year and be reviewed on at least an annual basis. Right. It's an, it can be an amazing amount of information. Sometimes it isn't, uh, <laughs> which I, I can be critical of, uh, but it, it should have a, a sufficient amount of information in there. And that's accessible in writing and required of staff to review and implement for the student uh, in the educational setting. And then on top of that, progress reports related to those goals that are identified in the IEP, those progress reports are specifically there to inform the family what progress, if any, the student is making for each identified goal. And you wouldn't get all of that or the school certainly wouldn't be legally required to provide all of that information if the student hasn't already been identified uh, as eligible and having an IEP. So in the scenario where you have a student who's now in high school who didn't have an IEP before, even though maybe she was getting IEP level support, you are also missing, uh, not only was there, I think, a legal problem for the school district there, but you are also missing that wealth of information that's being developed over the years in the record or even over just one year. Hi, this is Elia. Just wanted to let you know that SSG also offers trainings, consultations, and parent coaching. Uh, check out my offerings at thespectrumstrategy.com and I'd love to hear from you. Right. I mean, I think I often think of an IEP. I used to be in um, I used to be in human resources and I taught performance evaluation and actually created performance evaluations, you know, and worked with the 360. Um, it off, I, to me, it often seemed um, sort of intuitive that, well, yeah, if in a if in a business setting, we evaluate people's progress every year and then we have intermediate steps to get to that with goals. I'm like, it also course it makes sense for that to happen with students. I think it also helps to build self-awareness, right? If we're moving into that high school, you know, or post-high school phases as well, if a student is aware of the pieces that they need, the tools and supports that they need, they can then carry those things over. And I'm really big about, um, you know, self-awareness and then being able to self-advocate. So that would be probably a goal <laughs> on an IEP. But um, but yeah, I really think it's important to have, you know, a really well-written IEP. And I do have a, another podcast where I talk a little bit about, you know, IEPs should be for everyone. Although I know that there's so much work involved and I know why we don't do that. But um, it would be an interesting concept that education should be individualized for the student. Um, I'm, I'm curious as we talk about that, though, when we have these teachers going above and beyond, I've heard also in my trainings, many teachers having concerns for their students, and then either the school is sort of, you know, maybe overwhelmed or not able to pay attention, and then, <clears throat> excuse me for that, but um, but then also for you know, the parents maybe not recognizing. And so one of the things that that we often talk about when we're talking with educators in our our very safe setting that I create 
is what is the teacher's responsibility? Because I think a lot of teachers or educators, I'll use that broadly because there's other providers, get concerned about raising issues to the school district or to families. They're not sure if it's their role or they're, I think they're sometimes um, leery of retribution, right? But, but when we talk about child find, in some ways it's sort of that should be encouraged, right? So what is a teacher's responsibility, I guess? Ultimately, the district has that child find obligation. Of course, I represent families and children, so I see that obligation as expansive as possible. My take on it is that any staff person in the school district who understands, has knowledge of, has experience with a student who may have a disability, then it's that staff person's obligation to notify the person in charge of sending out the consent to evaluate form. To the family. Right. So just I believe to, it's basic and comprehensive. Yeah, I I'm I'm with you on that one. <laughs> and so I I I understand that there are other pressures involved. There are teachers who have lots of students, there are teachers who are doing lesson plans and grading. My mom was a high school teacher, by the way. So I have at least that experience (laughs) knowing how difficult it is to do everything that you need to do as a teacher. At the same time, as a lawyer, I have to go by the law and that's how I see the law. And in fact, stripping away all those other pressures that teachers and staff may feel, it can't be that difficult to send an email to whoever the right contact person is and saying, I'm concerned that, or I believe that, or mom told me that kid A (laughs) has been diagnosed with this. Uh, That does not take much time to do. Uh, So I don't think there's necessarily a time concern, but it, Maybe other areas which I don't think are really legal for uh, uh, for the district to be essentially uh, implicitly or explicitly communicating to teachers in whatever way that you shouldn't be informing us unless, let's say, something is so obvious that right. no one could deny it. Uh, I believe that would be too high of a standard. Yeah, I, I and I agree. And I've actually been a teacher who had a student that I needed. I needed to jump through hoops to have this student um, basically shine a light and explain what I was seeing in the room. Um, and because he was really super brilliant um, and really was able to access all of the curriculum, that was one piece, but what was happening at home and um, emotionally was another piece. And the school was like, well, no, he's in a gifted program, so we can't do X. And I was like, but just because he's gifted doesn't mean that he doesn't have these other things that need to be looked at. And really had to um, 
I had to do some of my own research about responsibility to be able to advocate for the student. Um, so again, this is why I'm doing what I do now, because I'm really the student advocate here. Um, but it can, it can be hard. Yeah. yeah, and this is about this is about what the law says. School districts are supposed to be following the law. School districts get federal funding. School districts are supposed <laughs> to follow the law to ensure that they can continue to get federal funding. That's yes, really important. And there are mechanisms to file complaints against school districts where if they really are either individually or systemically violating students' rights under these laws, then funding could technically right. be at stake no. for them. Now, if, if the powers that be... Uh, the legislative powers that be uh, feel that child find is too broad uh, of a net at the outset of the process, then people can <laughs> uh, lobby their legislatures or lobby Congress uh, to, uh, sorry, I should say lobby Congress uh, under child find uh, to modify it. Or change it. But as the law stands right now, that's the obligation. And it's unfortunate that school districts uh, have certain pressures that make staff people feel like they have to make a choice, which I believe they shouldn't otherwise feel that they have a choice. They should feel that they have an obligation. And they should be, be told uh, that the law yeah. says that everyone within the school and the school district has that. Yeah, that wasn't obligation. a professional development I received. I know that. <laughs> so it, it would be something important, I think, um, to be shared. And I think this kind of circles into, you know, kind of where we are now as far as obligation of districts. You know, right now we're in um, an unusual time, as everyone keeps saying, but with education um, sort of being sort of all over the place, right? So we have people doing everything online. We have people doing things in a hybrid. Some people are face-to-face. Some of it depends on the students. Um, So what is the obligation right now of districts? I mean, clearly, I think, uh, personally, having the the face-to-face interaction I would say live <laughs> face-to-face interaction with a student who has special needs, right? It is clearly probably a better way for most students, but right now it's not possible for necessarily public health interests. So how do we navigate that given how we are, where we are right now? Yes. One thing I want to make clear is that education decisions are local decisions So local school districts uh, following, making their own decisions, but following guidelines and regulations uh, within their states. Fundamentally, schools still have to follow the law. But the federal government, let's say, can't force all school districts to go in person. And I say that because that means every person who's listening to this podcast is likely having a different experience than every other person. So it's it's not the status quo where you just have your IEP, your typical general education, special education formats, 
and it's relatively straightforward to know exactly how to implement what you're supposed to implement. We, of course, have variations on remote learning, where it's fully remote learning or a hybrid model, where it's some level of in-person learning and some remote learning as a combination. And I can't speak beyond Massachusetts as to the level of full in-person learning that's going on. I can only speak to my experience in Massachusetts, where the majority of school districts are doing some type of hybrid model. Some are doing fully remote right now, looking towards a hybrid model. So as it stands, an IEP itself and all the laws around eligibility and developing the IEP and what's required to be implemented on the IEP, those laws have not changed. So for people going through the eligibility process or going through an annual review, team meeting, or anything else about the fundamentals of special education, those have not changed. But how the school districts provide the instruction and services and accommodations do have to be modified in a sense because the status quo was in person all the time for almost all students. And now we don't have that for almost all students. So for the individual pedagogical model that a district provides for a student, whatever that is, as long as it's allowed by your local jurisdiction, when it comes to the IEP and special education, the school and school district is supposed to be implementing that IEP as faithfully as possible in the given circumstances. So you could say, let's take individualized or small group specialized reading instruction as an example. So that is something that was done in person, and that is something that for most students, I wouldn't say all students, depending on the profile of the student, but for most students, at least in my experience, could be provided in a remote live setting by Zoom or Google Meet or whatever the platform is. So that's one example of that service was on an IEP for in-person. If you're in a situation where you're in a a remote, fully remote, or mostly remote hybrid model that can be provided. Um, but then you have other things that would require in person. So let's say an occupational therapist or occupational therapy. If it's something like gross motor skills or regulation, self-regulation uh, type stuff that that really is in, an in-person model. So. In, I guess I could imagine a very creative school district trying to implement that either uh, if it's a hybrid model in person, making sure that it's consistent with safety protocols, Um, maybe outside uh, if the weather is good enough, maybe inside if it's individualized, Uh, but that becomes more difficult. Uh, So the... The essential guidance is implementing the IEP as faithfully as possible, as long as it's consistent with the methods 
of the instruction or the support services that would normally be provided. Uh, there is a lot of debate all across the country, locally, state, in the United States about what model you're going to use, the tension between that and safety protocols, can they be implemented, equity, the list goes on and on. So when it comes right down to it for special education, that means you develop an IEP as if it is fully in-person status quo, non-pandemic, and then from there, you figure out how you can as faithfully as possible, implement that IEP. So a takeaway from this part of the podcast is that if you're in a team meeting, whether it's an annual review or a review of the IEP in the <laughs> pandemic, whatever approach your school district is taking, uh, or even an eligibility uh, team, an initial eligibility team meeting, the the the, uh, the fiction, in a sense, that you have to put your mindset in is you have to have the first part of that discussion be, okay, let's talk about where this student is and what's required on the IEP, and then move on to the next step of how do we implement it in the pandemic. I, I know in Massachusetts, uh, there are remote learning plans um, that have to, that have to be developed for special education students. So, what's important to note is there's a distinction between a remote learning plan and an IEP. So, the remote learning plan is supposed to be how the district is going to, as faithfully as possible, implement the IEP. And I am concerned that. Families don't understand that distinction, and maybe even school staff people don't necessarily understand that distinction, and that in the future, as students go through the system, as the pandemic continues, and as we get beyond the pandemic, that there will be this period of time of lack of clarity that will ultimately do a disservice, not only to the education that's being provided to students, as a whole, and special education students specifically, but how special education is implemented moving forward, understood moving forward, and reduced to writing, whether it's in team meeting notes or IEPs or remote learning plans going right. forward. Right. So, so talk to me a little bit more about that. So in what, in what way? Because I, I, I hear the path that you're headed in. What is the, so I guess, yeah, go ahead. What it comes, yeah, what it comes down to me, uh, what it comes down to for me is that families and schools start from the basics of an IEP, whether or not they're in a remote or hybrid model or anything that's short of full in-person. And then the discussion from there becomes, what is that remote learning plan? How do we as a district, with the family's consent, implement the IEP as best as we can in the circumstances that we have with safety protocols, the ability to have people in a live setting or not, 
and any other factors that need to be legitimately addressed. And that there be a contemporaneous record of those two separate things, rather than either there not being a contemporaneous written record so that people look back and get confused about you. what yep. happened, <laughs> um, or that a contemporary, contemporaneous record be confusing in itself if the distinction is not made. Because what if, for example, you can't provide a certain service that a student needs now during the pandemic that wasn't previously identified or wasn't previously known or wasn't previously provided, and now there's um, hypothetically non-pandemic, it would have been provided, but now the service couldn't logistically be provided. If that isn't all clearly understood and put in writing now, maybe you will lose the right. additional service that should be provided right now, but can't be provided. Right. For so I, so I'm, I'm thinking. Yeah. And, and we're, you know, you're, you're an advocate. <laughs> I'm an attorney. We're on top of this. We do this. We work with families. We tell them what their rights are. Uh, we point out to school districts what their responsibilities are. But the reality is that this is a small sliver of families across the United States. So I understand that the people listening to this are going to then take this and say, okay, great. Now I know what I need to do and I need to make these distinctions and make sure my school and school districts are doing the right things. I also look at this systemically. Uh, a lot of families don't truly understand their rights. Uh, and that's not their fault. It's the school districts who have the affirmative responsibilities to do everything under special education law. Uh, and if families don't understand their rights, and even if they understand some basic rights, but don't understand these distinctions of what's going on in the pandemic, they might not know what to do in the future. And school districts may not know, or at least the frontline staff in the school district, separate from the administration, might not truly understand. We're also thinking about a lot of things during the pandemic and including at school. And that's what I'm worried about from a systemic perspective is that, uh, that, that certain things will get muddled during this time. And my experience, of course, as a parent-side attorney is that when things aren't clearly understood, that usually it's the student Absolutely. who suffers. Absolutely. That's why, you know, I'm trying to bring this information and I appreciate you sharing that because I think that it, to me, that would be a huge takeaway for me is to think about, you know, I'm thinking about the scenario of a student who maybe during this last six months, it's been identified that they need, you know, occupational therapy for a particular skill. and they, you know, we can't provide that right now because of the circumstances that we say, okay, well, that kind of, we'll put that to the side because we can't do that right now, but we can do these other things that perhaps in putting it to the side, we never pick it back up again. And yeah. And so, I, I mean, I think I like the idea of having these, um, the way you're saying it is having the traditional IEP meetings and discussions and write up that we would normally do um, and then have this, you know, sort of concurrent, you know, side by side parallel documents or documentation notes that say, well, if it weren't, you know, pandemic, we would do these things and these are to be picked up 
you know, when things um, are safer. And and I think I think about this not just during pandemic, right? What if we have other natural disasters? We've had these things happen where there's been hurricanes or earthquakes or, you know, other, any sort of thing that would disrupt the normal course of education we still need to think about these things so that they don't get lost. And this just happens to be, um, you know, global. So everyone is affected right now. But but this had happened and it has happened locally because of a variety of different reasons. So I think it would be a great way to sort of think of it because there's so much here that we've talked about. But to think really about these those just two, those two things that I, I was I'm working on a course for, you know, teaching online during, you know, for special education. And to, to, just to have this as part of that um, training is just su- super helpful. And, um, you know, I think we've, we've talked about all the ways that um, the school needs to be responsible. Um, I think we've talked a bit about how the family needs to be responsible as well and what their rights are. And I've talked a little bit about this um, before. And so, you know, given all of this, you know, all of this information, I think there's a lot here that people can pull from. If they're looking to find out more information, um, what are some resources that you could suggest where they could kind of go and um, find out some more things? Yes. So on the issue of education or special education during the COVID-19 era, you can look online at the United States Department of Education for specific guidance. You can look within your local state or commonwealth uh, for published guidance on how the state is approaching uh, implementing, evaluating for special education and implementing special education for students, depending on the model the school districts, uh, the school district that you're in has adopted. Uh, Advocacy groups are out there all across the country hopefully within your state or jurisdiction. I know here in Massachusetts, uh, there are several uh, children's rights groups and special education oriented groups that have been putting on seminars and publishing their own uh, notices to families about what they should be aware of. This is a development Mm -hmm. that we're experiencing (laughs) on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis. It's changing as we speak. I wouldn't be surprised if there was something released (laughs) while we're recording this podcast. That's how quickly things are changing. And honestly, it's hard for people to keep up. We're in a pandemic. People are keeping up with their health, their safety, their sanity, their work, their financial circumstances. But what this comes down to is children and children who are in a pool identified with risk to their ability to access the curriculum and to make educational progress. So these are children whose education has to be flagged as a priority, even in the pandemic, even with the difficulties of providing education. The law has not changed on identifying these students on finding them eligible where necessary for providing a free, appropriate public education 
for developing an appropriately comprehensive and detailed uh, individualized education program for them. Schools who are struggling with a lot of things, including essentially inventing a right, new pedagogical right. approach in a matter of months, <laughs> which no. is not easy. Uh, but we can't lose sight of special education yep. students. And even though it may be more difficult to provide them their special education in the pandemic, when it's already difficult to provide simply a general education for all other yeah. students, the law still requires that it be done and these students need it and these yes. students well, deserve it. I think it. that is a brilliant way to end here because um, it, that's really what it's all about. It's about the students um, and particularly students who, in this case, um, can be at risk. So I um, appreciate you sharing your information and sharing your knowledge with everyone. Um, you know, I hope if anyone, you know, listening has questions, you can feel free to reach out to me and I can try and point you in the right direction of where to, to get more. Um, and again, thank you, uh, Peter, for being here with me today. Yes, I had a great time. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Thanks for listening to Autism in Real Life. This is Elia Walsh. And if you like the show, please hit subscribe so you can get notified each time a new episode is released. I also offer training, consultations, and parent coaching and would love to help you in any way that I can. You can check out my offerings at thespectrumstrategy.com. And when you join my email list, you can get a code to receive a discount off of an online class or a coaching session. Looking forward to hearing from you. Take care and see you next time.